Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to a new episode of Field Days, an award-winning podcast about news and hot topics related to the Michigan Department of Corrections. Here are your almost witty hosts, Chris Gouts and Greg Straub. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Field Days Podcast. I'm Greg Straub, joined as always by the department spokesperson, Chris Gouts. Chris, uh, you know, we had quite the uh, the incident this past week and weekend. Um, I saw in the news. The Super Bowl? Well, there, there was that. But prior to the Super Bowl, there was a, a big oh, event, yeah. a big event right. for us um, where, you know, it's unfortunate that one uh, one of our prisoners was attending a court case in another state. Um, do you want to say that what state it is? It was Ohio. Okay. Yeah, we can say that. Okay. I didn't, wasn't sure how far we could go there. But, um, but yeah, he was t- attending a, a court case um, on some new charges he had in Ohio from prior to uh, his prison term. And unfortunately, he was released, and you know he uh, he was still a prisoner. So uh, that's never a good thing when when that happens. So um, who do you call? It's not Ghostbusters, but who, in those scenarios, who do you call? I would always call ERU. That's right, the Absconder Recovery Unit, because because they do an amazing job at uh, at fugitive apprehensions and really really awesome team of dedicated staff who really I mean they took they were long days, not a lot of sleep. Um, they mm-hmm. worked probably you know, three or four straight days with our law enforcement partners to, to get this uh, person apprehended. So I know you want to give an update on that, right, Chris? Because it, it was it was really big in the media, and, you know, we were posting a lot of stuff on social media. So we have one of our favorite guests favorite. Of, of all time. Other than the director. Probably of course. the most asked uh, that we get, other than the director. Yes, he uh, he did win most popular guest last, did, yeah. last year, two years ago. Yeah. Um, so it's great to have uh, Lieutenant Charles Levins back on the podcast so uh lt thanks for coming back on we appreciate it thanks fellas i appreciate the invite i missed you guys for the last couple of years I, I understand i moved down to number two because of the director i'm not mad uh, but i'd like to try to make a comeback this year and go back to number one if i could <laughs> okay well let's, let's keep this real then okay let's keep it real fellas um so i you know i, I kind of just brought up uh kind of what happened but pick up where i left off there lieutenant uh, as far as you know you guys were notified somehow um, that this happened, and then what happens? How, how does how does everybody get mobilized? And um, tell tell us how this all goes down. Yeah, that's a great question, Greg. We do cases like this almost every single day. Uh, maybe not the same scenario, but uh, the end result is we have someone that is wanted, someone that needs to be taken back into custody, and we do that on a daily basis based on uh, their parole status or their escape status. Obviously. Uh, this case was a little more unique, um, so we brought in some extra additional resources and manpower because it was kind of high priority. Um, so we pretty much pulled all hands on deck uh, to make this happen. Um, so I, last Thursday, I was contacted by the Saginaw Correctional Facility. They kind of explained what happened. They had a heads up of what was going on uh, right away. They're like, what do you need from us? And at that point, you know, they provided me some information, kind of the basis of what was going on. Uh, so once we hung up the phone, I signed the case to one of our investigators down in the metro area because the subject we were looking for, Mr. Brazil, uh, was sentenced out of Wayne County. So I got with my Wayne County investigators. Uh, he was immediately assigned to ARU investigator Carlos Cook, uh, which is kind of cool. He was your ARU investigator of the year, by the way. Um, so it was the perfect uh, perfect combination for him to run, the, run this case and uh, to track this guy down. Um, so once he assembled a crew, um, the first thing I recommended to him is that he actually kind of reach out to the folks in Ohio to find out exactly what happened, not third hand, but directly from the jail. And he did, he found out that uh, Mr. Brazil had went to court, uh, was arraigned and given a bond. Uh, so Carlos uh, Carlos Cook immediately reached out to that jail, got that information. Uh, he then went direct with the bondsman to get some additional information. And the bondsman 
the bondsman's office gave us great information. We knew right away, let me take a step back. One of the things we were concerned about was, you know, is this guy going to be in Ohio still? Would he come back to Michigan? Would he go somewhere else? And immediately we were able to determine that on the day he was bonded out, he was bonded out by his mother who put up her house and some cash. And also on the uh, bondsman agreement, uh, there was a signature from a female person of interest or a, I guess a girlfriend. Uh, we didn't know that at the time, but it was it ended up being his girlfriend. And so we were pretty sure that he was going to be back in Michigan. The bondsman was real specific that the mom and girlfriend showed up in person and they took him back to Detroit, Michigan on the day he was released. So that got us in a good starting direction right from there. As far as working the case on the very first day, Thursday, I think we got that information just before noon. Uh, we followed up on several leads. Uh, we did interview the mother, the I think it's a stepfather and another family member that afternoon or that evening as we're still trying to gather intel and we wanted to do, conduct a lot of interviews to find out what's going on where do they think he is we knew that mom and girlfriend had last contact with him um, so that was where we really started the investigation they both kind of stated well mom and dad kind of stated that they hadn't seen him since he got out they gave us some information where we could start looking and we followed the path from there um, that night i believe we worked till two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. I can't even remember now. I know I got home. It was probably about four in the morning on Thursday night, uh, Friday morning. Uh, but by six o'clock, our guys were back up out of bed and working the case again all day Friday. And uh, I think Friday night we worked till about two in the morning, a little bit less than we did the night before. And then again, back in six, seven o'clock on Saturday morning uh, until we could really dial into where we thought he was and concentrate on a specific area in Detroit where our information and our leads and our investigative efforts had led to a specific location in Detroit. Um, so that's kind of how we pinned him down, at least initially. Saturday afternoon, we were doing surveillance on a apartment building that we believed that he was at uh, based upon our investigative efforts. We were trying to determine who he might know in that building or what the connection would be, but we never could find that out. One of the things through our investigation we did learn is he did a lot of moving around or traveling, um, but all the vehicles that we were looking at in that complex were actually uh, assigned to people that lived there, but we had no connection other than one specific vehicle was a rental car. And so that kind of piqued our interest. So when that vehicle left uh, later in the afternoon, we had a couple of our ARU investigators do surveillance on it and follow it. It went to a party store and a gas station. And when we initially saw the vehicle left, leave that apartment complex, we believe that was just occupied by a single female driver. However, as they continued surveillance and occasionally once in a while when you're doing moving surveillance or roving surveillance, you kind of lose the car for a second, but then you can pick it up because maybe it makes a turn. You can't get over in the right lane to, to go with it. So you're going to have to do, grid the block to you pick it back up. During that process, they did lose the car for a quick second. Um, they did see the next time they picked it up or they, they saw it, they observed that there was a second person in that vehicle. However, they could not really identify who that person was. Out of luck, uh, evidently they needed some gas. They pulled into a gas station. The female got out of the car for a second and then the male passenger got out and it fit the general description of the person we were looking for, Italian Brazil. The person had the right physical makeup, looked a little bit heavier, but again, had some hoodies on and some clothes. So that wasn't a big deal to us. So we thought that it would be a good idea to, that we make a positive identification of who that passenger was. Um, at that point, uh, one of our investigators, John Hugel, reached out over his radio in the Detroit area and got a hold of the state police and asked them for some assistance in doing a traffic stop to try to identify who this passenger was. That vehicle left the gas station before the police department could arrive, or the state police, excuse me. 
Um, that vehicle, we kept moving surveillance on it, roving surveillance on it until the state police arrived. Once they arrived on scene, we kind of backed off to let them do their thing so they could do a felony traffic stop and go with their protocols. Um, but as soon as that happened, uh, the state police tried to pull them over. The car accelerated and it became a high speed chase to be real blunt with you. When they got back into that vehicle at the gas station, the male who was the original passenger now became the driver. So when he took off in that high speed pursuit with the marked units only, we really thought that was going to be him. A few minutes later, after the crash started, uh, there was a crash with that vehicle. The roads were very, they were very poor. It was snowing. Roads were wet and slippery. And at one point he did lose control of his vehicle and had an accident. I went to the scene of that location along with the rest of our investigators, except for one or two that we left on the apartment complex, really thinking that was going to be our guy. And as soon as I arrived on scene, the gentleman had no ID. He looked similar to our guy. Uh, but it turned out not to be Brazil. It actually turned out to be one of his brothers. So as we interviewed him, he was not 100% cooperative. On the scene, we did not have a positive ID on him. So I give a kudos out to CFA on this. One of the things we used to initially identify this person of interest was we started looking for the tattoos that Brazil had. And these are tattoos that are entered by CFA into OA to Omni. And that was a great teller right there. As soon as we started looking for some of the tattoos, we didn't see them. Um, so we immediately sent people back to the original apartment, uh, excuse me, apartment complex where um, we conducted some more surveillance. Also in that vehicle, or he would not give us any information. Let's take a step back. Um, he wouldn't give us any information, which we kind of expected. However, the female in the car, we pulled her away from him and conducted a separate interview. Uh, that was conducted by myself and uh, ARU investigator Tanya Weidman, and she was actually very forthcoming. We asked her where she came from, and she said she left her apartment building. She went to a, I think, a liquor store. That's where she picked up the brother uh, that was in a car that we had just stopped, or the state police had just stopped, and that the guy we were looking for uh, was in the apartment still. Um, so we asked her, I said, have you called to let him know that you guys were compromised or on a high-speed chase? She said, nope, he has no waves of no way of communication out of that apartment. And we said, okay, is there anybody else there? She said, no, are there any weapons? She goes, I don't think so. With her that information, we immediately created a 360-degree perimeter around this apartment complex. It was a small one. I think there was six or eight units in it. Because of the, the traffic accident, there were several law enforcement units tied up with that accident. So as we were back at the, went back to the apartment, we had one Detroit police uh, unit with us. We attempted to make contact at the door. There was no answer. However, we could see through a window and one of the investigators physically saw Mr. Brazil run from a one room into what later we determined to be the bedroom and hide. Uh, we gave him uh, commands for several minutes to come out of the bedroom. He didn't. I kind of took over the commands and just kind of explained to him, listen, I want, don't, don't say anything. Just take a deep breath right now. This is over. You can't get out. We're not leaving. And I promise you, sir, that no one is going to hurt you if you follow our commands. Uh, within seconds, he emerged from the bedroom. He followed all our commands, keeping his hands in, uh, in open sight the whole time. Um, we placed him in a tactical advantage. Uh, kind of in the middle of the living room, even though we're still outside, giving the, uh, giving the commands through the window. Um, at that point, we did uh, make entry into the apartment. He was taken into custody, uh, searched, and that, that was kind of the end of it right there. His his run was over. And uh, honestly, I think he was kind of relieved. He actually had a pretty good sense of humor after we were done and was 100% cooperative at that point. Once we got him into custody, we obviously made our telephone notifications to uh, as for the policy to the facilities and to um, to the deputy directors, let them know what's going on. 
And at that point, it was determined that he was would be returned to the uh, Reception and Guidance Center. And I had ARU investigators Paul Raymond and John Hugel do that transport. So that's kind of the big picture of how it went down. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, dramatic story, isn't it, Chris? It's a big picture and all the little pictures together. Yeah, the very, oh, cool. very, very all-encompassing. After that happens and you guys have been up for basically three or four days straight, what do you, what do you, what do, you do? Do you guys do you go home and just pass out for two days straight? What, what, what happens? No, that's a great question. The very first thing we did is once he was in custody and kind of en route to Jackson is that the remaining folks on the scene, we kind of just had a little uh, discussion afterward. Hey, what, how, you know, to kind of discuss what happened after action review. Hey, what did we do wrong or what could we have done better? It was just a good opportunity while everything was still fresh in your mind. Sure. That, you know, we got to go over what we did. Hey, what worked? What didn't work? What would we do again? How would we do things differently? So we got to learn from this experience at the same time because we don't deal with prison escapes every single day. However, it is our main priority for the policy. It takes a priority over every other case that we have. One of the things I really it was kind of cool is that we had volunteers, uh, ARU investigators around the state that really kind of stepped up too. We had guys that drove from West Branch, uh, from Berrien County to come over to Detroit to help us out, to give us bodies. We had one investigator, uh, Chad Johnson, uh, who's on a light duty position right now, although he couldn't come to the scene. I know on two of the days, uh, he was the first one on the radio. Uh, and he just basically did a lot of computer work over the radios. We're coming up with information and tips and trying to get do background checks on people. He was right there for us. So even though he wasn't physically on the field, he was still in the game, which really helped us out a whole bunch. Some other people that really stepped up, obviously our law enforcement partners out there, uh, the Marshall Task Force. We used some, a couple of their task force officers to help us out. Uh, the Michigan State Police, obviously, I, I was in contact with them and their fugitive team and the marshals immediately as soon as this happened. And they promised any resource that we needed, which was really cool. Um, but the uh, the state police, obviously, with that traffic stop, helped us out a whole bunch. And that really sealed the deal. We knew 100%, you know, after that traffic stop that our guy was in there and everything. So, yeah, we couldn't have done it without them. I guess a couple more accolades is uh, from our own department. As soon as this happened, I started getting emails from our intel unit uh, in Lansing. They were providing this information, uh, background information on uh, the subject himself, Brazil, and his family members, which was a, was a help. Um, there was a suggestion made on Friday because of his gang history that even though he had been locked up, I think since 2009, 2010, right about there, that he had a gang history possibly on the street. Um, so I immediately reached out to our par- our embedded agents who were with the gang uh, task force down there. But it was Agent Bradshaw and Agent Monday. Um, I reached out to them and said, hey, I know this guy's been locked up a while. Is there anything maybe your task force or your gang guys in Detroit there might be able to provide for information? And within minutes, they were digging up information to help us out. So it, even though the ARU was kind of in the spotlight for the actual physical arrest, there was a lot of support units behind us that made this possible. And it was a really good team effort all the way around outside law enforcement and our own departments. I was really proud of everybody at that moment. That's really that's really impressive that just a team that was put together to uh, to be part of this. Our staff, you know, local law enforcement, state law enforcement, federal, what a team to to have to try to apprehend this person. So it's it's really cool. It's really cool that you give all the kudos because and I and I know in the press release that uh, that we put out on Saturday and, and, and prior to that, we did have a lot of law enforcement partners alongside us uh, yes. as a as a force multiplier there, didn't we? hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. It was, uh, we explained our situation and I don't know if that's a number one priority for all the outside law enforcement agencies, but they knew based on our previous history of working together, they knew that was a priority for us. 
and there was nobody that said, no, we can't help you, or no, we can't provide information or uh, manpower if you need it or march units for traffic stops. That never happened at all. Everybody's like, whatever you guys need, just call us. We will make it happen. It was that's pretty. Uh, it's a good kudos out to the Department of Corrections uh, for having that kind of image out there on the street that they have that much respect from outside law enforcement. Very cool. Yeah, uh, Lieutenant, I, I, you know, I echo everything that was said. It was just so great to see everybody working together, not just all the outside, but all the... Uh, you know, the the inspector, you know, you gave me the inspector's phone number. I talked to him. Uh, the intel unit, everybody was sharing information. And it's so good to see that there's not silos. People don't hold on to things. It's all hands on deck and everybody was working together. And it came to a quick and, and safe resolution. So it was just really, really great to see. And it was a very, very proud day for, for the department. Yeah, I was very proud of everybody involved. You know, obviously my own guys, but all these other, like I said, in groups around our own department, you're like, we didn't even cut to call them really. They're like, Hey, do you need help? This is what we can do for you. Absolutely. I'll take anything you got. And it was cool. People just wanted to step up and help and be a part of the, a bigger team and a, for a bigger cause. Although my group is this group or whatever. It was not like that at all. It was everybody's like, Hey, what do we got to do to get this guy into custody? What can we do to help you guys? And it was a great outpouring of support. Well, and now, now that this is over and done, now you're back to, to the, the work you do every day. And, and, and like you said, you, you do this kind of work, maybe just not as high profile every day, which is kind of why we wanted to have you on one, because this was a big deal in the media. Lots of people, a lot of people are aware of it. So we wanted to have, you know, right from, uh, from the people who are involved to hear from what happened. But again, this is something that happens every day. And we want to give you a chance to talk about your staff and, and the, the important work that, that they do, uh, because this does, you do have people out there, you know, in harm's way every day trying to keep this uh, state safe. And you've had a lot of success at it, bringing the number of absconders down over the years. And uh, it's just, uh, we're always happy to, to have you tout what ARU does, uh, because it doesn't get, uh, I don't think it gets done enough. Yeah, I appreciate that, Chris. Yeah, our guys, uh, they're doing this every single day, probably six days a week, mostly, pretty much every day other than mostly Sundays, unless we have a high priority case or we get a, a tip on somebody that we really need to get off the street. Uh, most of our guys are working, all, everybody's working five days a week. Most are working probably six days a week, even if they're not physically in the field. Even after hours, a lot of people don't realize this, but even after hours and on weekends and holidays, they are still shagging calls from tipsters or family members that are trying to help us out. Uh, they do it for, uh, I don't want to say the love of the sport, but they do it They do it because they understand that that's a part of their job and nobody's requesting on-call pay. They don't, they're not doing it for the money. They're doing it for the, the love what they do, Chris, and uh, I can't thank them enough. Um, uh, it's one of the few teams I've worked with in, you know, around the state in my career that, like, even after hours, they're answering their phone calls. They're answering phones. They're answering emails. If there's any questions, they call me. I'll answer my phone. And one of the things, that, it sounds simple, just answering the phone calls. It's kind of a, a pet peeve I've always had is that in this business and in, in the criminal justice system and somebody's calling us, nobody's calling us usually just to say, hey, or hi. They're usually calling us because there's some kind of problem or they have some kind of information for us. Uh, so I can't stress the importance, especially when our guys do it, of answering the phone after hours and on the weekends, uh, inconveniencing their family and their their personal life, uh, but they do it without hesitation. And I think that's one of the things that's made us so, so successful. We are just not a bunch of guys and gals that work from 8 to 4.30 and then go home and forget about the job. It's more of a lifestyle than it really is, you know, just a place of employment. So here's a question for you. Would you answer your phone, wait for it, at a Metallica concert? <laughs> well, I tell you what, I would answer it at a Metallica concert, and I would absolutely answer it on Christmas Eve when we have somebody who left the boot camp several years ago. Yes, I would answer that phone. So all those things have actually happened to you, right? 100%, You've actually yeah. answered your phone about a call at a Metallica concert and yeah, on Christmas I, Eve. Well, that was very nice of you. You know, and I was going to ask, um, yeah. you know, what kind of person does it take to to be a member of your team? And I think you've already answered that question. So I think we'll move on from that one, Chris. And okay. Chris, you did talk about the numbers, how they've went down. Aren't we upwards of 60% now from the last 10 years of active absconders? We're down that much 
is, yeah, is, it, that, is it that high? Yeah, it's at least that now, uh, Greg. I don't know the exact percentage. I haven't really kept track, but I can tell you, uh, for the first time ever, uh, last summer we were down under a thousand prolosconders, and that was starting from a number of around almost 2,500. I think it was 2,486 back in 2009 when we brought the metro. Uh, territories of Scotland recovery unit online with us with the the outstate, um, so it's a huge reduction in numbers. We I think this number or this month we're probably going to be back under a thousand. We kind of raised a little bit last fall. We were short a couple members, uh, but we've held some interviews. We hired three new guys uh, this past uh, fall. They uh, are very impressive. It was, was kind of humbling too that two of these individuals actually took demotions. I say that again, they took demotions to come work for our team. I never had really seen that before, like holy smokes. And for one guy, it was a promotion. Uh, they went into our on-the-job training program with the, shadowing other investigators, and they honestly finished their program months ahead of what we have had on paper, what we planned on them training. Um, they're already on the streets, they have active caseloads, and they're already trying to make an impression out there and do the right thing. So yeah, the number of people and the quality of people that we've been able to hire uh, through our process now is just uh, its amazing. Really, the quality of candidates, um, the quality of people we have in our own department is amazing. One of the things that I get the question a lot about is, how come you don't hire outside law enforcement? How come you don't hire retired state troopers or deputy marshals? And civil service rules uh, don't allow that. It's got to be someone that's had at least two years of corrections officer experience within the Michigan Department of Corrections or equivalent. And so all these people that we're seeing on the team that are making this this difference are people that came from our inside that really started from the day one in recruiting as they came in as officers or at one time worked as an officer. They've continued to do the right thing in their career. And then when they get to the interview cha- interview panel with us and the tryouts and the qualifications, we're still seeing bright and how they motivated employees coming through our own department to try to make a difference to help us out. Well, I want to talk about, uh, before we go, um, one way in which you've uh, helped to motivate your staff. And we we talked about this a couple weeks ago on the podcast. I can't remember which episode, Greg, but uh, we gave a a shout-out to you, Lieutenant, for uh, the belt uh, that you've instituted. And if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that and maybe who the the current holder of that is and what it takes to uh, to earn that belt. I got the idea. i got to be honest with you. I'd like to say I'm a smart guy, but... I don't want to throw any insults out there, but I'm I'm just a public, public educated country boy, and so I honestly stole the idea from another fugitive team on the federal side of our our partners. Uh, they kind of give out a little uh, a wrestling belt for the best fugitive team around the state that helps them out with arrest. So, I took it one step further. I said, you know, I'm going to adopt that whole concept. Um, their wrestling belt is very nice. However, I've got a nicer belt. Um, it's uh, actually has ARUO logos on it. Um, it's a wrestling belt that everybody on the team seems to want to have. And so every quarter, we give that belt out to the investigator that has the most parole absconder arrest for that quarter. We don't look at any probationers, which we work occasionally. Um, it's just parole absconders, the numbers that really count, the numbers that go to the legislature. And right now, for the last two quarters, a young man who comes highly motivated, uh, he's one of the most respectful people I've ever talked to, if you ever have a conversation with him. But he's so motivated. He's, a, he's just one of these people you really want to hang out with. You want to maybe drink a beer with after work or hang out because he's just that infectious with his uh, his whole attitude and look out on life. And that's Mr. Darren Furden, uh, who we hired on the Jackson Transport team many years ago. And he's the current holder and has been there for the last two uh, quarters. Uh, but However, I have a couple new guys that we just hired that are brand new. And they don't really care that Darren has that belt. Uh, they've already said they're coming after it. So it's kind of cool. It's actually generated some friendly competition. And it's just one of those things. You get to keep the belt. You can take it wherever you want to. Well, LT, we can't, uh, you know, we can't thank you enough for um, taking time. I know you're probably exhausted after a long weekend. Um, but thank you so much for, for taking time to come on and 
kind of just update us, number one, on the, the case that you guys worked. It was very high profile. We know that. So very good uh, job well done on that. But also just to kind of uh, you know talk more about ARU, just to inform people about what you guys do, um, that you got some really awesome staff that uh, go out every day and try to help make Michigan safer and, and get you know some absconders who um, aren't quite following the rules on parole um, back into custody. And uh, thank you so much for everything that you do, LT. We, uh, we, can't, uh, we can't say that enough. I appreciate it, sir. And uh, we have people that are investigators on our team that are eligible for retirement, have been eligible for retirement for years and will not leave because they enjoy coming to work every single day. And I don't know a lot of jobs out there where you actually hear that kind of job satisfaction. Our guys absolutely love their jobs. They want to come to work every day and make that difference. And without them, honestly, this team is not successful. It's not what I do. Uh, my job is just to make sure they're motivated and remove any barriers that keep them from doing their job. And they're the ones doing the work. It's, it's really not me at all or Jeff. Well, I think Chris and I would argue that uh, a lot of it has to do with you and Jeff. So, um, but th- thanks again, LT. We, we, we appreciate, uh, we appreciate coming on today and talking about the Absconder Recovery Unit. But Chris, you have some stuff that you want to talk about, right? Before we, uh, just, before everybody go. Just two real quick housekeeping items. Uh, everybody in the department should have g- gotten an email this week about the progress report uh, that's that we just uh, put out. It's available online for anybody else who's listening. We just finished our first year of, of the department strategic plan. And so every year uh, at the end of the year, we're going to be updating everybody on how we did with the objectives that were put in place for that year. So that just came out this week. So everybody can look at that and see uh, exactly what was all accomplished in 2019. And then later this week, uh, the state budget will be rolled out. So everybody be uh, glued to your uh, computer screens to see what uh, it's, what's in store for the department budget. And then hopefully we'll, we'll be back on next week to talk about uh, all that and, and what was included in our budget. So unless you got anything else, Greg. No, just stay tuned next week to an episode of Field Days Podcast. All right, as always, thank you for listening. We'd love it if you would help us spread the word about the podcast. You can do that by subscribing to the show on iTunes and leave us a review. You can always follow the department on Facebook at MI Corrections and on Twitter at Michigan DOC, as well as the FOA account at MDOC FOA and the CFA account at MDOC CFA. And you can send any questions you have to the show using the hashtag AskFieldDays. Until next time, thanks for tuning in to Field Days Podcast.